Well, welcome to our traveling church. I look forward to the day when we don't have to question where are we going this morning. That will be nice. One less thing to worry about. Uh, my name is Ross Gilbert. I'm the lead pastor here. If you haven't met me, and I'd love to meet you if you haven't met me yet. Uh, glad you're here. Um, uh, just a quick comment. Uh, last week we announced it, and I want to make another announcement. Um, Josh and Robin, they've been sitting with the elders, and we've been kind of checking them out and seeing if, uh, if we think that they should go on to become elders here at the church. And uh, we've reached that point, that conclusion. That that's what we think. Um, but we're, we're inviting you guys now to share your opinion on it. Um, quite frankly, I'm looking for an excuse to say no. I mean, I just need any excuse, really. So if you have any concerns whatsoever, just pull myself or Greg aside and, uh, and let us know. And we'll love to talk to you about that because the, the role of being an elder is a very, very serious role. And we take that seriously and uh, want to make sure that we are good people in that, uh, in that spot. Um, the other thing I want to say to you this morning, just in general, is I, I don't want it to be so much where I just only speak to you all the time. I would love for you guys, if you have a question, if I say something that strikes you and you want to make a comment, you know what? Let's pretend we're not in church. All right. Let's just uh, open up and make it safe that if you've got a question, raise your hand. Uh, grab my attention. If there's something you want to say that you think is really important, that you want to add to it. You know what? Let's do that. Let's open that up because uh, I think that God wants to speak through more than just myself this morning, especially this morning. And so we want to make that that time available for for everyone here. So I'm really glad you are here for this morning, though, because uh, as I was kind of getting ready to speak and, and, and preparing the message, I, I began to think about it last Monday. And I began to kind of think, OK, what's the passage that we're going to be on in Ephesians now? And, and I had a general sense of what it was about. And, and I was excited about where I wanted to go with it. But I kept having this nagging voice in the back of my mind saying, uh, what about going over here? But don't worry, I ignored that nagging voice. And I was determined because I knew where I wanted to go. And so I was just ignoring it all week long. And then come Friday, I sit down and I, and I break up the passage and I start to study it. And I only got about two verses in. And it became very clear that that nagging voice was actually God. And, um, and I, I need to take, pay attention. So I, I'm excited you to hear because I think he's got something very special for us um, this morning as we're going to study his word. So. Uh, for me, one of the things that I find really difficult is memorization. I, I, I have people like, for example, Greg and, and, and Jeremy and others, they can quote movies like it's nobody's business. And, uh, or they'll, they'll drop a line from a movie and other people around go, oh, that was from Dumb and Dumber, because that's probably Greg's favorite movie, right? So, so they, they, they just they connect on those things and they memorize movie quotes and, and, and song lyrics and so forth. And I, I struggle so much with memorization. I, I think that's probably why I struggle with the languages. You know, never mind English, but just learning like, you know, French or Spanish or any other language, I struggle with it because so much of it is memorization. Both the, understand the rules of grammar and the words themselves. So it's very difficult for me. Uh, my mind, my brain is wired like an engineer. And so for engineers, we want to understand the concepts. We want to understand how do things work and function. And, and it's easier to learn those things than just trying to memorize things over and over again. So when I became a counselor, it wasn't going to work for me to just sort of learn that if this is this situation, you apply this solution. And if it's, this is this is a situation, you need to apply this approach and so forth. It was never going to work for me to be a memorization aspect. For me, I had to understand how do people tick? How do people work? And, and every one of us is a bit unique and different. But at the same time, we're still people. And people haven't changed. People are people. And so I, I kind of try to understand how do people function? What is, how, do, how do we do the things that we do? And, and I came to understand that people don't randomly just act, especially when it comes to major decisions. I mean, maybe you just randomly picked what socks you're wearing to wear this morning. But in terms of bigger decisions in life, how we treat people, how, you know, where are we going to go and what are we going to do and so forth, all of those decisions are really motive driven. Meaning that there's something behind all that that's leading to the behavior choices that we're making. And so I began to kind of reflect on that and, and understanding more about what goes into creating those motives. 
And I, I began to see and discover that really there are these, these three patterns to it. There's, there's the first one is going to be an event. And that event then is going to lead to a belief, and that belief is ultimately going to lead to a, beha a behavior, right? So what does that mean? What is that talking about? Well, the events are, are where, we, where something happens to us, where maybe something that we do or something that's done to us that we take away some kind of information. We begin to learn something, something about ourselves, something about the world we live in, something about other people. And, and those events and what we learn from the events, and that's really the important part of it, it's not so much the event, but our, our interpretation and what we learn about from that event, that goes to begin to form our belief. And that belief is critical because now, now that's going to change how we perceive every event coming after that. How do I see people? How do I see myself? How, how do I feel when I walk into a room of strangers? Is it a safe place or not? Are people safe? Are men safe? Are women safe? And, and, and all kinds of what I believe now begins to take hold here. And that belief is so critical because it's that belief that goes on to then inform the choices that I make, impacts my behavior. See, Proverbs 23, 7 puts it this way. As a man believes about himself, so is he. So what you and I are believing about ourselves determines how we live. Let me give you this simple example. If I tell my kids for the next five years straight, then they're nothing but a bunch of little liars, right? That's the event. I just keep telling them over and over again, you're liars, you're little liars, you're little liars, over and over again. What are they going to be begin to believe about themselves? That they're liars. And so now when, when they get into trouble and they're, they're kind of backed into a corner or they're, they're worried about getting into trouble, what are they going to do? Chances are they're going to lie. Right? Because that's how they, uh, that's what I am, that's what I'm going to do. And so they're going to act out of what they believe. But the crazy thing is, they actually might go the other way. They might become hyper vigilant with the truth. Because what are they trying to prove? That they're not liars. So here's what's interesting two very different behaviors, right? Lying or hyper vigilant with the truth, but they're both rooted in the same belief that they're nothing but a bunch of liars. So you can start to see that the behaviors really aren't the issue, is what are we believing about ourselves? And so that belief then becomes really critical to understand. So let's understand a little bit more about some of the, the examples of, of how this plays out. Because again, we're all unique, we're all different, we all have different experiences, but I think we can kind of look at three major groups that you'd probably find yourself in one of these three groups. The, the first group I want to think about is, is the example of people who've grown up with all kinds of, of hurt, all kinds of difficulties and, and rejection and abuse, maybe. Maybe they were sexually abused. Maybe they were physically abused. Maybe they were neglected. They, they didn't grow up knowing and experiencing a lot of love. Instead, they, they experienced a lot of lack of love, a lot of rejection and hurt. And, and what ends up happening is all those events over and over again, they're like deep scars, deep scratches or deep wounds within a person's soul. And it begins to weigh on them and it begins to, to inform them that, that I'm, I'm no good, that people are going to hurt me, that I'm, I'm meant to be used, I'm meant to be abused, I, I kind of deserve it. And what ends up happening is this, this message of shame just begins to tattoo itself over their soul. And they just, when they look in their mirror, they don't see who they are as much as they see who shame tells them that they are. That there's something not right with me. And no wonder people treat me this way. Because, because deep down, I think I deserve it. That must be it. What else could explain it? And, and people will hurt me, and so I can't be with other people. And so now, because of those beliefs, now they're going to begin to act on those things. And what we do in our behavior is three things. We're going to try to find a way to earn love, change how I feel. I'm going to try to protect myself. Or I'm going to try to comfort the pain that I can't seem to get rid of. And so this person, with all that hurt, all that abuse, they've probably given up on trying to earn the love. I mean, not completely, but it's never quite enough. And so really what they're going to do most often is try to protect themselves and comfort themselves. 
So maybe they put up walls and barriers, keep people at a distance. Maybe they, they turn to, to Netflix or drugs and alcohol or relationships just to numb their pain, just to feel better in the moment. Because they're just trying to not feel the shame that's just weighing on them. So that's, that's one group. Then, then you have another group of people who they don't have any of the major events. They don't have any of the major traumas that we could identify and say, well, that's why I feel this shame. Instead, they've got a series of small messages that over time have added up. And, and the best way I can describe it is that imagine you had a one-ton boulder, and then on the other side, you've got a pile of sand that if you add it up is one ton. Notice it's the same. The, the thing is with the, the grains of sand is, is it's just, you know, one grain of sand on its own is not enough, but you add it up and it becomes substantial. And so then there's a group of people who grow up and they just experience small messages of shame. This is, this is where I fit in. See, I didn't, I didn't grow up and experience any kind of major traumatic events. I, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I knew my parents loved me. I mean, I grew up, I, I knew, always knew my mom was on my side. I never questioned that. And so I was very fortunate to grow up in that environment. But that was not the source of my shame. For me, the source of my shame was, was a lot of it was rooted, I mean, there's many different areas, but a lot of it was rooted in my size. See, I grew up as a, as a small kid. And, and I think that there's, there's nothing worse, at least for me at least, there was nothing worse than being a small boy. Because being a small boy, it, it spoke so much to my masculinity. It just said, I'm weak. I got nothing to offer. I'm not that big of a man. No one's going to want me because girls don't want to date or be around small boys and so forth. And, and so you're treated less than, you're talked down. And, and, and so I always felt that, that deep shame about that. But I think there was, there was a moment where it really began to, to coalesce for me. I was in grade eight. And I remember I was, I was standing, we, would, we had lined up in our grades in front of the, the school when we had to go in after a lunch or recess. In the front of the school, they had the, not just the glass doors, but they had windows beside it that basically effectively became a giant mirror. And so there I was standing in front in grade eight, it was a K to grade eight school. So I'm supposed to be at the top of the heap and I'm in line with all my classmates and, and my good friend, Michael Haxma, he's Dutch. And there's something about Dutch people. I don't know if it's riding the bikes or what, but, but they're all tall. And so here he was. He was head and shoulders above me. And I remember looking in the mirror going, is it really that big of a difference? Am I really that small? And, and there was something in that, that moment that coalesced in my heart. I mean, it had been there before, but something really gripped hold of my heart at that moment. I'm just a kid, and I got nothing to offer. That was the message of shame that I carried with me over and over again into every relationship, into school, into my work. Everywhere I went, I'm carrying that message. And so what I need to do, I got to prove myself. I got to work harder than everyone else. But no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I worked, it was never going to be enough because I could never outrun the message of shame. And so then I got to, I got to protect, I get, I get nervous. I'd be, oh, I'm an introvert. You know, some people are an introvert. So I, and I'm an engineer, so I don't do well with people. But I'm hiding because I'm just, that message of shame, it says, if they ever know what you know, they won't want anything to do with you. Well, then there's a third group. And, and the third group is, is really, it's a combination of people who maybe have had deep traumas or maybe little traumas because we've all had some to some degree. But this third group, what, what kind of sets them apart is they have something in them, either maybe it's the will, maybe it's the drive, or maybe it's they're gifted in certain ways that they just seem to have found the formula, the secret sauce that this world offers where if they're able to perform well enough, if they're able to look good and get the praise from this world, that everyone thinks they're doing okay. And so this, this third group, they just seem to perform better than others. They're better at their jobs or maybe better at, at relationships or maybe they've got this special gift and talent. Maybe as an artist, uh, singing, or, or they have the ability to make money. Whatever it is, they've seemed to crack the code. 
and everyone looks up to them. The problem is inside, they're always thinking, man, if, if they knew. I mean, it's just, it's all a front. And if they ever figure it out, then I'm in trouble. So I got to stay driven. I can't ever slow down. I can't ever take a day off, a night off, because then it's all going to come crashing down on me. So I got to push. And so you can see, it doesn't matter which group you're in, whether the behavior looks good or doesn't look good. We're all dealing with this, this struggle and this shame and this insecurity, which is the craziest thing is we think we're the only one. I was meeting with a, a group of ladies yesterday. They invited me uh, to, to speak to this group of ladies, uh, largely from, from Africa. And it was really cool to just interact with them and talk with them. And, and there's one lady, she begins to share with me. She goes, I, I can't talk about what I really struggle with because if I did, then people would, wouldn't want anything to do with me. And I said, you know, that's what everyone thinks. And she was stunned. Is that, is that really true? can't be true. Yeah. That's what everyone struggles with. And that's, that's the world. That's the environment that we live in. And that's the environment that Jesus comes to rescue us. And so that's what this passage is. It's sort of like we're a bunch of POWs. And we've been sitting in this, this dungeon, this dark place, and finally bursting into the prison comes Jesus to pull us out and rescue us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's our passage. We're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 17 and 18. And it says that he, Jesus, came and he preached the gospel. He preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. It's the passage we're going to look at and tear apart. And I, I'm, I'm really hoping that you hear the heart of God in all this, in his invitation. Let's pray. Father, every one of us struggles in some way. Maybe we don't want to admit it, but the truth is we're all still growing. We're all still experiencing restoration. We're all still experiencing and catching up to the good news of the gospel of what you've done. I pray this morning, especially this morning, Jesus, that we would be willing to stop the charade, to stop pretending that we have it all together. And we would just allow you to speak to our hearts in a way that makes it safe for us to come to you and experience healing and hope and redemption. And that's something you have to do. So would you do that this morning? I can't wait to see what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to take a quick look at, at the passage in terms of how, how Paul wrote it and what he meant it for, right? Because that's where you want to always start whenever you're studying a passage is what was the initial uh, intent? How would the original audience receive that before you get into the application? So we want to do a, a quick to make sure that we don't go too far with it, right? And so the, the, the quick thing to understand is first is he's talking about how he, he came and he preached peace. The word there for preach is actually evangelize. And, and that word evangelize means to proclaim, to announce. And so I, I just got this picture again that Jesus came and he announced peace. The, the picture, the word image I had in my mind was that you imagine sitting in a, in a hospital waiting room and suddenly bursting through the doors comes the father, the, the new father. And he jumps out and he says, it's a boy. It's a girl. And he's announcing what's done and the celebration and the joy. And that's essentially what I think he's doing here is he came and he announced, he proclaimed peace. It's done. It's finished. It's not giving you now, here are four things, five things. If you do this, if you stop doing that, then here will be the result of peace. He says, no, it's finished. I'm proclaiming, I'm announcing peace. Peace to who? to those who are both near and those who are far. Well, who are those people? Well, the near and far basically are speaking to the Jews and the Gentiles. The, the Jews would have been those who are near. 
They had the, the covenants of God. They were the people of God, the chosen people of God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. They could relate to that God. They knew that God. They knew about the coming Messiah. They already had a connection with God. So they can say that they were near to God. But those who were far from God, the Gentiles, who were basically anyone who wasn't Jewish, the Romans, the, the, the Greeks, the, the Asians, whoever it was, they didn't have the same connection to God. They weren't his chosen people. And so what God was saying is, whether you're near or far, it doesn't matter. We're all coming together. Well, what does that say for us today? I think basically if we were to look at the near and far, we might consider the near to be those who are either religious or grew up in a religious home, grew up in a Christian home. That would be more of my story, where growing up in that Christian home, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough as a, from a little child to hear about the stories, to hear about the gospel, hear about the good news, and know about who Jesus is and what he did. I mean, for as long as I've remembered, which is more than two weeks, just sort of for the record, but as long as I can remember, I've, I've known about Jesus. But then there's other people who didn't have that experience who grew up in a, in a, in a home where, where Jesus wasn't important. He wasn't central to it. And they've come to Jesus later on in life. And so again, we might think of it as those who, who are religious, those who are non-religious. You might think of it those who had a, a very good upbringing and those who had a not-so-good upbringing. You might even think about those who had a, a clean nose through life, where they, just, they, they made good choices and for the most part lived a moral, upright life. And those who didn't, those who went through life where they just, they, they, they seemed to see if they could have a checklist of every single sin and were working their way through it. And whether that was sex, drugs, and rock and roll and country music, they were checking them off. And they're far from God. And Jesus says, I came and announced peace to all of you. Now, here's what's really interesting is those who are near were really no closer than those who are far. Because all of us were separated from God. And, and I think we have to understand that, that really the reality is, think of it this way. If you miss a, a cruise ship, if you, no one's going on a cruise ship anymore because of the virus. If you miss a bus, if you miss a bus by one minute or by 10 hours, does it really matter? No, you missed the bus, right? Well, the near person, that's the one who missed it by one minute. And how often do they brag? I only missed the bus by one minute. You missed it by 10 hours. Guess what? You're both sitting on the curb. It doesn't matter. And so that's the reality of things is that we need to understand is the near and far, neither were very close to God. Because of the separation, because of sin, we needed to be rescued. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all miss the boat. And so Jesus comes and it says here, let's go back one, pineapple. Goes back one and, and he says that through whom also we have, oh, sorry, go back one more. Perfect. Through him, we both have our access. Oh, I love that word access. Shows up three times in the New Testament. Once here, another time in, uh, later on in Ephesians, but also in Romans 5, 1 to 2, which now we can go to. And I love this passage here. Paul says in Romans 5, 1, 2, that through him, through Jesus Christ, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. There's that word peace again. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. That phrase, obtained our introduction, is the same word for access in the passage in Ephesians 2.18. The, the word access is, is best described as, um, it, it, think about uh, medieval courts, right? Can you think about a medieval court like a, where the throne and the kings and queens would sit, the nobles would come, right? So they're in the throne room. And if you wanted to come and, and you would to come and talk to the king, you couldn't just walk in, right? You'd have to go and talk to the guard and the guard would say, are you on the list? And if you're on the list, he would then, it would say the guard would introduce you. So picture this, we're in this throne room and, and suddenly Danielle's about to walk in and the guard now, you know, 
hits his staff on the ground, maybe to get everyone's attention. Everyone goes quiet. And the guard would say, introducing Danielle Balfour. And now Danielle would now be allowed to enter into the throne room. She would be allowed to come and address the king. That's what this word access is. That's why obtained our introduction. We've obtained an opportunity where we can now enter into the throne room of God. Why is that significant? No more separation. No more distance. You're on the bus now. You're able now to come and speak to and talk with God. And you've got this access, and it's a permanent access. It's not an access that comes and goes. It's an access that we have all the time, forever and ever. We've got this access. Is that making sense? Here's where my study, though, got really exciting for me. When, when you first saw the passage, uh, you might have noticed verse 17 was all in capitals, right? That wasn't Paul shouting, right? He wasn't texting in that way. The, whenever you have your Bible and you open up your Bible and you see all capitals for a verse, chances are you have a study Bible. And what, that, what the, the editors of that Bible are trying to alert you to is that they're quoting an Old Testament passage. And so that's what Paul was doing. He was quoting an Old Testament passage here that goes back to Isaiah 57. And, and that's what got really me excited, because I thought, well, let's go check it out. And I didn't want to just read the, only that verse. I wanted to kind of see what was the context of the verse, what was being said here through the prophet Isaiah. And, and listen to what he says, beginning in verses, chapter 57, verses 14 to 19. And, I, and it says this, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. So you can almost get this picture of, of God saying, get ready. Get ready, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through everything. Nothing, no obstacle, no barrier is going to prevent me from coming to my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. That kind of makes sense, right? God is so holy, we would expect him to reside in a high and holy place. Like a king, you would expect a king to live in a palace. And you would expect that palace would be all decked out, that it would be ornate and, and everything would be high end, right? You wouldn't expect it to be a little shack where everyone's kind of crowded in there. You would expect it to be grand and beautiful. And that's where God says, I dwell in this high and holy, in this grand and ornate place. But, goes on to say, also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. So those who are struggling, those who are down, those, those who can't even pull themselves off, up off the floor, God says, I'm there too. See, again, he's not waiting for you and I to get our act together and then come to him. He comes to us when we're in our mess. Why? to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I made. Because of the iniquity of the, his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. As a result of man's sin, we turned away from God, and so for a time, God gave us over to our sinful desires. For a time, God being holy wasn't able to connect with man, but only for a time. He says, I, I'm not going to do that forever and ever. Instead, I have something better in store. I've seen his ways. I know his sins. I know the choices he's made. I know how he's hurt other people. I know how he's hurt himself. I know everything about them. but I want to heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Do you hear that? Healing, comfort, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace. One translation, really, it says this way, it's peace upon peace, peace squared, overwhelming peace. 
to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord. And just so we're clear, and I will heal him. Well, let's do a little word study here. Let's understand some of the, the key phrases and key ideas here in this passage. The word peace in Hebrew is actually the word shalom. How many people, show your hand if you're familiar with the word shalom? Excellent. We got a few Hebrew scholars here, Robin, right? Did I say it right? Amen, right? All right, so shalom, check me if I'm wrong here, Robin, but what it means is it, it is translated peace, and that's accurate, but it's way more than peace. You see, if two, if two Jewish people come and they see each other, they'll often say shalom to one another, and it's a greeting, but more than a greeting, it's a blessing. So what they're saying, shalom, is may you be well. May you be prosperous. May you be healthy. May you be whole. May things be good about you. That's really what this word shalom is saying here. And so when, when, when God's saying peace upon peace, shalom upon shalom, shalom squared, what he's saying is may you be well upon being well. May you be whole. May, you, may things go well. May you be prosperous. And not just physically, but your whole being be made prosperous. That's what this word peace and, and shalom means. But then it got me thinking about the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the word salvation, the Greek word sozo. And, and the, the word sozo, again, means to save, but it means more than that. It, it means to, to heal, to preserve, to do well in my personal favorite, to be made whole. Does that sound good? I mean, if you were to take a, a moment and, and examine how you see yourself, like really see yourself when no one's around, it's just you standing in front of that mirror of the soul and what you perceive about yourself, maybe on those hard days. Don't you often think that, that you're lacking something? That, that there's something just not quite right yet? And so hearing that, that invitation to be made whole, what does that do for you? For me, it, there's hope, because that's what I long for. So you, do you see the similarity here? The peace upon peace and salvation sozo. You see, for me growing up, while I'm very thankful for my Christian heritage, I was, I was given such a shallow understanding of the gospel. Actually, let me correct that. I heard a shallow understanding of the gospel. That's not saying that it wasn't taught to me well, but what I heard, what I interpreted was, salvation was come to Jesus, get your sins forgiven, because you got a lot of them. I had a little sister I tormented. So get your sins forgiven, and now your future secured. You're going to heaven one day, but in the meantime, keep your nose clean. Don't add to any more sins. Remember, that's what got you in trouble. Now you got to stay out of trouble. And if you're really serious about your salvation, you will make really serious about avoiding that trouble. And you're not going to struggle anymore. You're not going to sin anymore. And so everything should be OK. Jesus loves you. That should be enough. And you're good. Go. Live your life for Jesus. So hearing that, I thought, OK. I love Jesus. He loves me. I want to make him proud of me. So I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do my best for him. I'm going to make sure that he knows that I love him and that I would work and I would strive and then I'd fail. And I would be unkind. I would, I would say something mean. I would lie. I'd have a bad thought. And I'd sin. And, and then I'd just feel miserable and guilty about it. And again, just don't have what it takes. You've, I, I got to try harder. And I was just never good enough. No matter what I did, I could never outrun the shame. No matter how devoted, how sincere, how hard I worked, it was always there taunting me. Always there just laughing at me going, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Because I'm not going anywhere. Because you're, you're broken. It's that, it's that shame that we all deal with in some way, some form, that God came to heal us from. See, have you ever, do you ever notice how many of the miracles that Jesus did were healing miracles? Sure, you had the food stuff, right? 
feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000 and, and all kinds of other miracles. But, but the, the majority of the miracles Jesus did were healing. The lame man walked. The blind would see. The dead would rise. The leper would be healed. I don't think that was a coincidence. I think what God was doing in the ministry of Jesus, in the miracles that Jesus was doing, is he was trying to let us know what he was up to, what he was desiring to do. You see, we're all, we're in need of healing. Now let's, let's be a little bit clear on some of our terminology because I think sometimes we talk about getting fixed. And the reality is, because of what Jesus has already done, you don't need to get fixed because you're no longer broken. That's really important to understand that God has already fixed us. But that doesn't, that means we don't, that doesn't mean we never struggle. Instead, we do struggle because there's more healing. There's more understanding that needs to happen. There's more transformation of what I believe as I begin to jettison the lies that I've been believing about myself and other people and of God. And I'm replacing it with the truth of who I am, of who you are, and most importantly, who God is. And so that's the healing that God wants to bring to us. To understand that, though, let's, let's understand the mission, the heart, and then the invitation of Jesus. Right? So here's the mission. The mission was given to us in, uh, in, in Isaiah 61. It was the very passage that Jesus quoted at the start of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. When he got up in the, in the temple and he, he pulled a scroll off and he began to read these words to them. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Basically, here's my mission. To bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Man, that's way better than the gospel I believe growing up. Way better. That's his mission. That's, that's what he came to do, to set us free, to bind up the brokenhearted, to those who've been afflicted, beaten up, chewed up, spit out, those with the deepest wounds of shame. He says, I've come to meet you. I'm right here. That's his mission, to rescue all of us. But to really understand that mission, I think it's important that we understand the heart of God. And the heart of God is so cool. It's so amazing. In Matthew, Matthew 12, we got this description of Jesus. And it's, again, it's interesting because it's, it's going to quote another Old Testament passage here. But it says in Matthew 12, beginning verse 15, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him. So he's just been preaching. He's been doing miracles. And he begins to pull away. And all kinds of people are following him. Why? Quick, just shout out some answers. Why do you think they followed him? They want to be healed. What else? Get their needs met. Get their needs met. What else? Be ministered to. Be loved. You know what I also think is in there, though? They were attracted to him. There was something about him that was unlike anyone else. And they said, I got to be around this guy. I got to be near him. Why? They followed him and he healed them and, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. That's what God the Father is saying about his son. I'll put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim. There's that announce again. Justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The strength and the power. But look at this. A battered reed, he will not break off. 
and a smoldering wick he will not put out. There was something about him that made him the safest person in the world. This, this broken wheat reed just sitting in the ground. I mean, we just kind of kick it. We just walk past it. And he's so gentle with it. A, a smoldering wick. Think about that. Think about a candle that's just burning out, burning out, burning out. And it's just got just, it's like 30 seconds from being burnt out. We might just come and blow it out. You will not extinguish. Said so he sits there with it and he encourages it. And he helps that, that wick to grow stronger. He heals that broken reed so it could be used to play music maybe. He leads justice to victory in his name the Gentiles will hope. See, we need to have our, our concept of, of God changed. See, in describing that about Jesus, that might not be hard to receive for a lot of people. Because we've read the stories. We've, we've seen how Jesus defended those who were being treated unjustly. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the healing. So to understand about that about Jesus, all right, I can receive that. But do you understand that Jesus and God are of the same character? That everything that's true about Jesus is also true about God the Father. See, too often we get stuck on this Old Testament God, New Testament Jesus. And that they're very different. That God of the Old Testament is angry, judgmental, hard to please, distant, cold. God that's just out to get us. No, 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 no. God the Father. God the Father is the one that a battered reed he will not break off. That a smoldering wick he will not put out. That's the heart of our God. That's what motivated the mission in the first place. To come and rescue us. To come and set us free. So we've understood the mission. We understood the heart. But now I want you to hear the invitation. It's an invitation to you and I today. It's not just an invitation to join the family of God. It's not just an invitation to get saved and now, you know, go to heaven one day. No, it's an invitation for you and I every moment, every day. It's an invitation to experience this healing, this peace, this, this sozo, this salvation of being made whole. Listen to Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, Jesus... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Let's break that down. For through him, through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, where Jesus went and he suffered and he died, so yes, you and I could be forgiven, but much more, so much more, that you and I could be made new. Because when you and I were crucified with Jesus Christ, you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you also have been placed in Jesus Christ so that when Jesus died on that cross, the old you died with him. The old Steve. You guys haven't met the old Steve. He was a stinker. Oh, boy, was he ever. Not, not good. Self-centered, selfish, judgmental, condemning. And that was on Tuesday. Wednesday was even worse, right? So not a good guy. So what does God do with him? No hope, let's kill him. Places that old stinker in Jesus Christ. And guess what? You and I weren't much better. Near and far, right? One minute, 10 hours, you missed the bus. None of us were good. All of us, though, as a result of our faith in Jesus, we are placed in Jesus Christ, crucified with him, buried with him, so that God could raise up a new Steve. Oh, you should get to know new Steve. Oh, boy, is he ever great. He's got a new heart. He's a righteous, holy child of God all the time. Now, sometimes he forgets himself and acts like the old Steve, but that's not who he is. He's got a, he's got a new spirit. He's a new person through him. That's what Jesus has done. 
That's not waiting us. That's why we're not broken anymore. He's already done the work. We're already fixed. So through Jesus and what he's done, we all both have access. Introduction now. We enter in the courtroom in one spirit. One commentator, because the commentators were kind of arguing, does that mean that, that I've got access and Danielle's got access and, and, and Mark's got access? Is that what he's talking about? One commentator says, no, that's, it's not that we all alike have access as much as we all together have access. I think both are true. But there's something about that latter one that struck me this week. Because it's, it's no longer just I go to Jesus. Instead, Lisa gets to come with me to go to Jesus. Because sometimes I'm too afraid. Sometimes I just, I, I don't know if I have it in me to do. So what does Lisa do? She comes and says, come with me, Ross. It's okay. We're going to go, do this together. You, me, and the Holy Spirit. Together, we've got access because of what our big brother Jesus did. We've got access. Here's the coolest part. Don't miss this. Oh, please. Please, please read this and hear it. We have access to the Father. Oh, it's so easy to read that so quickly and miss the point here. <clears throat> it doesn't just say access to God, although that's true. It says you and I have access to the Father. I picture it this way. Jesus has made the way. He's done the work. It's finished. It's what he said on the cross, amen? And so now what, now what we have, we have access, whether you go alone or others come with you, but it access with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, come with me. Come with me. Come, Megan, come, come with me. We're going to go, and we're going to go and sit with our Father. We're just going to sit with him. And he's going to sit with us. The one who won't break off a battered reed. The one who's so gentle. Who, who will be so cautious and careful that he won't accidentally even extinguish that, that almost extinguished wick. He's so gentle, and he'll sit with us. And he'll speak to us. And, and, and he'll tell us who we are, who we really are, and what he's done to make that possible. He, he'll remind us of who he is. And slowly, what's happening now is, is I'm changing what I believe. I can't change my past events. That's done. But I sure can change what I believe about myself as a result of those things. I can change what I believe about other people. And yeah, that will lead to change behavior, but, but it now begins to heal those deep scars, those deep wounds in my soul. And shame doesn't have the same bite anymore. Oh, it will scream. It will shout. But I won't jump at it anymore because I'm going to go, well, wait a minute. There's something else that's true now. We used this phrase a long time ago, and we're going to keep using it over and over again because it's so beautifully crafted. But this, this phrase of truth, trusted, transforms. I was reminded of again because our friend John Lynch, who, who coined that phrase, was in town last week. And, and I love this phrase here, the truth. Truth of who you are, who God is, what he's done. That's, that's my job is basically is to communicate, proclaim, announce the truth. It's done. It's not what you need to do. It's done. This is the truth of the finished work of Calvary. So my job is to share truth with you. Greg's job, Robin's job, Joshua, whoever's up here. But not just whoever's up here because we get to do that with one another. Remember when I said Lisa would come with me? She would be sharing truth with me. But, but I have a part to play in, in this. When Lisa comes and shares, shares truth with me, it's now will I trust it? Will I, will I put my faith in the, what Jesus has said in his word, through his Holy Spirit, through the cross? Will I trust that that is absolutely true? Despite my fa the fact that my feelings are screaming at me, it can't be true. It can't be true. Not about you. Not about you. No, 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 no. You're different. You did this. You are there. You are a part of that. No, no, no. This is what's true. Will I trust that? Because entrusting that truth makes room, makes opportunity 
for God to bring that transformation. Right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Because as you think about yourself, so are you. The fix that we're looking for, quote unquote, the, the change, the healing we're looking for will not start with your behavior. It will not start with a new pattern, a new formula to live. It's not where it starts. It starts with coming and accepting the invitation of the Holy Spirit to take advantage of the access that you and I have with our Father and just to sit with Him. Just sit with Him and, and allow Him to encourage you of who you are. What kind of a difference would that make? What kind of a difference would that make in your heart, in how you see yourself, how you see your spouse, your kids, your friends, your enemies, if you began to believe, to trust that that's true? That's the question I want you to wrestle with this week. In fact, if we had more time, I'd get you to wrestle with it right now. But the Kids are probably going crazy, and Josh is probably really going crazy. Oh, we got time. No, we won't do that. So, so if, you're, if you're really up for it, we got coffee out in the, the lobby. It's, you're going to have to go find the coffee. It's a treasure hunt, right? And if you find it, you get caffeine. You're motivated now, right? So, so go grab a coffee. Go grab a tea. Grab your kids first. Then go grab a coffee and a tea. Why don't you, when you're talking with people, yeah, catch up. How was your week? How are you doing? But ask the question, how would your life be different if you began to believe this? Oh, it just got real now. <laughs> if there's ever a place, if there's ever a place to be vulnerable, let it be the church. Let it be the church. Otherwise, otherwise we're playing a big game and we might as well pack it up because it's not worth the effort. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, what you've done is amazing. It's incredible. You came when we were in our lowest pit. You came and you burst through the doors and you proclaimed peace. No more enmity, no more strife, no more distance between us and you. You've made the gap disappear because of the cross brand new people. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Incredible. And now we've, we've got access. We can, we can walk into the throne room of God. We can stand in his presence, even it says in your word, because we're one spirit, united with the Holy Spirit, who now lives in us, who every day and many times throughout the day is extending an invitation. Come. Come with me. Come, little boy. Come, little girl. Come sit with our Father. I pray, I pray Jesus, that, that we'll do it. That we'll sit with our Father and that, Father, you will speak to us. You'll speak tenderly to us. That we will see exactly how safe you are, how trustworthy you are, and allow you to heal those places in our heart that we're so afraid of, that have been wounded so deeply, we don't ever want to go back there. But that we would accept the offer and the invitation and let you come and shine the light in where that darkness has been and see the healing that you've done and see who we really are. In your name we pray, amen.